John chapter 17. Pagers off, phones off, Bible open. Now that you're there, would you please welcome the um, audience that we have listening from around America right now. If you're listening by radio and you're wondering, what's the hooting and the hollering? It's just our way of saying hello, right? Giving a gift is an expression of kindness. We do it to express friendship, reconciliation, sometimes romance. Sometimes we do it just for fun. Now, buying a gift for some people is fun. Buying a gift for other people is tough. You just don't know what to get them. They're hard to buy for. Men find it harder, I believe, to buy for their wives than women do to buy for their husbands. I may be making a a gross exaggeration or oversimplification, but I, I think that's the way it is. I think that women are just better in tune with husbands' needs and wants, and men are just more oblivious. Is that right? Generally true? You're clapping for that? That's good news? Though we don't always know what to buy, one fellow tells us what, what, not to, what not to buy. He's a writer and he wrote for Reader's Digest, and here's a list of things not to buy your wives' husbands. Don't buy anything that plugs in. He says anything that requires electricity is seen as utilitarian. Don't buy clothing that involves sizes. The chances are one in 7,000 that you will get her size right and your wife will be offended the other 6,999 times. Do I look like a size 16, she'll say? Too small a size won't cut it either. I haven't worn a size 8 in 20 years, she may say. Three, avoid all things useful. The new silver polish advertised to save hundreds of hours is not going to win you any points. Number four, don't buy anything that involves weight loss or self-improvement. She'll perceive it. A six-month membership to a diet center is a suggestion that she's overweight. Number five, don't buy jewelry. The jewelry your wife wants, you can't afford. The jewelry you can't afford, she doesn't want. Number six, Don't spend too much. She may ask, how do you think we're going to afford that? Number seven, don't spend too little. She won't say anything, but she may think, is that all I'm worth? Now, though it's hard to buy for people, we don't always know what they want. When it comes to the gift that God wants, we don't have to guess. Basically, God wants you, your life, your heart, all of you. Jesus, in this prayer, tells his Father directly what he wants. He muses over gifts the Father has already given to him. He's mindful of the gift he has given to people who follow him, and he requests something very specific from his Father. 
The prayer is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5 is the shortest section. That's where Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples immediately, those 11 that are still following him. He prays that they would be strengthened or fortified. He prays that they would be holy or sanctified. And he would pray that they would be together or unified. Then, the rest of that chapter, he prays for us, the disciples that will believe in him through their testimony, the testimony of the eleven. Basically, he prays for unity, once again, and their testimony. Now, some people think it's selfish to pray for yourself. I'm glad Jesus prayed for himself. He set the precedent. I don't think it's selfish. I think it's needful. I think we need all the help we can get. And besides that, in chapter 16, Jesus gave us a command, Ask, and it will be given to you. Let's look then at these first five verses. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There is one gift that is requested. Glory. Jesus asked for it in verse 1. He asked for it also in verse 5. Glorify your Son. Notice something about this glory. It is prehistoric glory. He calls it before the world was. Before there ever was a world created, it was a glory that was shared. It was prehistoric glory. Also, it was pre-existent glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was still existing at that time and shared in this glory with the Father. Now, why does Jesus ask for that here? Why is this so important? What is he requesting exactly? What is on his mind when he says, I want that glory back? Well, I think to understand this prayer, you need to understand where Jesus has come from and what he's been up to. And I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage. We need to refresh our minds with it to understand this prayer. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in the fifth verse. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's three things I want you to notice about the passage we just read. Number one, Jesus existed 
as eternal God. Keep all of this in mind when we go back to that, give me the glory that I once had with you. Jesus existed as eternal God. For it says, he was in the form of God. The words that Paul uses are interesting. Morphe theo, he says, the form of God. He doesn't mean the outward form. He doesn't mean the size. He doesn't mean the shape. He would have used a different Greek word, schema, but he used morphe, which is the essence, the essential character or nature, which never changes. We as humans have a morphe. We are humans from birth to death. That never changes. But the schema does change, right? We begin life as a zygote. You may not have known that, but you did. Just a couple cells formed together that multiplied. And then that schema changed from a zygote into an embryo, from an embryo into a fetus, from a fetus into a newborn, then into a toddler, to an adolescent, to an adult, to an older adult. All of that changes. The schema changes. But the morphe, the essence, the essential nature is the same. He was in very essence or nature God. And that's what Paul is saying. Jesus possessed the unchangeable, essential nature of God. If you have an NIV, that translation even captures it much better. For it says, who being in very nature God. Unmistakable as to what that means. And it's in the present active tense. What Paul is saying is that Jesus always has been and presently continues to be in nature God. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why Jesus could say to a man who needed forgiveness of his sins, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. That's why Jesus could say to Thomas when he received his worship, and Thomas could then, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. So, First of all, Jesus Christ existed as eternal God. Keep that in mind. The glory that I had with you before the world was. Second, also in Philippians, he shared in the Father's glory. Notice it says, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now some of your translations may say, he didn't consider it something to be grasped or held on to at all costs. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, coexisting, co-eternal with the Father, shared in the glory of heaven with the Father throughout eternity. That's why Jesus used that form of timelessness in John chapter 8 when he said, Before Abraham was, I am that eternal existing in glory with the Father. Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. So he existed as eternal God. He shared in the Father's glory, but he stepped into our world, verse 7, to die. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He made himself of no reputation. He poured himself out to the very last drop. A free rendering would translate that. Ekenosen. 
to pour a vessel out to the last drop. That is, Jesus came into our culture. He spoke our language. He came onto our turf. He emptied himself. Now, precisely what Jesus emptied himself of has been a long-standing debate between conservative and liberal scholars. Some say he emptied himself of his deity. Oh, no, he did not. Because remember, that morphe, that essence in nature, never changes. It's something he always was. What he did empty himself of was not his deity, but the prerogatives of his deity, or some of the prerogatives of his deity, one being glory. That face-to-face fellowship and relationship that he had in heaven, he gave that up. The adoration and the praises of all the angels he exchanged for the mockery and the scorn and the spit of man. He gave all of that up to come to our world. Now, every now and then in the Gospels, you'll see a glimpse of his glory. And it's astonishing to us. It was to the disciples of the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus shining brighter than the sun with Moses and Elijah. And they went, wow! This is glorious. Let's build three tabernacles here, Peter said. It was a miracle, he thought. The miracle wasn't that he shined. The miracle is that he didn't shine all the time. Being God, having eternal glory, he left that, came into our earth, and so his deity was not void but veiled at the time. Now think of this. To be emptied to that degree of suffering, become a man, die on a cross, to empty yourself of, to that degree of suffering after experiencing that degree of glory would be tough. To go from heaven to Bethlehem, from the throne to a stable, a cave, from the crown of heaven to the cross of the earth. Philip Keller wrote a great book, about the life of Christ. And there's a little insightful paragraph where he writes about the birth of Christ. A more lowly or humble birth is impossible to imagine. It was the unpretentious entrance, the stage entrance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, of God, very God, in human guise and form upon earth's stage. In the dim darkness of that stable, a new sound was heard, the infant cry of a newborn babe came clearly. For the first time, deity was articulated directly in sounds expressed through a human body. We talk about culture shock. It was really hard those three weeks over in the Philippines. From heaven to earth, I want the glory back. Jesus cries to his Father what he knew, what he tasted. Now, it wasn't just the obvious cross-culture environmental shock of leaving heaven and coming to the earth. It was much more than that. It was the humiliation he got, the rejection he got once he came. It says he came unto his own, his own people, his own covenant people, the Jewish nation, and his own did not receive him. But it was even more than that, even more than being around the sin and hearing the foul language and and um, watching sinful deeds, what had happened to mankind after the fall in the garden, it was more than that. The real shock came 
when Jesus took all of that sin on his own person. That's the real shock. All of the stealing, all of the anger, all of the murder, all of the hatred, all of the pornography, all of the child molestation, all of the cheating, the divorce, the adultery, all of the things like September 11th multiplied on and on. He took upon his own body. As Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin, that's the glory, to be sin for us. Well, now we get it, don't we? Now we understand this prayer. Jesus is facing the cross and the weight of all of the sin of all of humanity is upon him. He's feeling it as he approaches Gethsemane and as he approaches the cross. And he wants that prehistoric, pre-existent, co-eternal, co-equal glory back that he once had with the Father. After pouring himself out, after veiling his deity, I want the glory back. And we understand the plea. Question, did the Father answer his prayer? Oh, certainly he did. There was a resurrection, wasn't there? There was an ascension. There was this exaltation. And Philippians tells us that too in verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Stephen saw that when he was dying in Acts chapter 7. They were pelting him with stones and he saw the glorified Jesus. He said, look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. John writes about it. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. He looks into eternity. He sees the heavenly Jerusalem and he writes, And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates that city, and the Lamb is its light. Something else popped out to me this week as I was pondering this. We get an inkling of how great heaven's going to be. Because if Jesus longed for it that much, after three and a half years of his ministry, after 33 years of being on the earth, now he's crying, restore that glory back to me. Heaven's got to be amazing. Every now and then I'll hear somebody pipe off, oh, heaven isn't going to be that great, it's going to be boring. We're going to just sit on some cloud playing some dumb old harp. I don't plan to do that. Jesus longed for heaven that much. Why? Because he'd seen it, he'd experienced it, he'd lived in it in eternity past. He knew what it was like. When somebody that I know as a believer dies, they die in the Lord, there is a sense of envy, I'll be honest with you, that I have. Now I know that I'm going there too, but they beat me there, you see. They're experiencing it now, and I don't think the last breath they took on earth and the first breath they take in heaven is, okay, where's my cloud and my harp? I want to get bored for eternity. It must be something like, wow, that's cool. Some expression of amazement. Jesus knew it. Jesus longed for it. That's the gift that he requests. Now, look at verse 2. And the rest of our verses, there's some gifts that are mentioned that are recollected. He prays for one, he makes a request, but now he goes back over three gifts 
Two are gifts the Father has given the Son. One is a gift the Son gives to people. And notice the frequency of that word give or given. As you, verse 2, have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The first gift is the gift of authority that he is mindful of. As you have given him authority over all flesh. The word authority means the right to act or rule, one in charge. Remember when Jesus did miracles and the leaders of the Jews came to him and they asked him a question. Remember what it was? He said, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? What's the answer to that? The Father gave him that authority. Jesus tells his disciples later on, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now what does that mean? He has all authority. It means all authority. And in Greek, it means all authority. (laughs) And we know what that means from looking at the scripture. He has first authority over all creation, right? He's the creator, John 1.1. All things were made by Jesus, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians chapter 1, in him all things were made and they consist or are held together. Jesus holds the elements of the earth together. He has the authority to do that. You ever thought what would happen if he let go? One day he will. Peter says all of the elements will melt with fervent heat. Because he's holding them all together. He has that authority. Some years ago we did a very daring and dangerous thing. We unleashed the atom and we saw the potential of letting that thing go. One day, Jesus lets it all go because he has the authority to hold it together. He has the authority to let it go. Second, Jesus has authority over his own life, death, and resurrection. Important you recognize that Jesus wasn't murdered. It wasn't an accident. It was an appointment, his death. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, Nobody takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. For he says, This was given to me by my Father. Third, Jesus has authority over the church. He says in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's the head over the church. He has that authority. Fourth, he has the authority in judgment. Jesus says in John chapter 5, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So one day, the world will stand to be judged before God, and Jesus will preside. He will either be your Savior or your judge. You take the choice. You pick. Now, It is interesting, it's even hard for some of us to believe what we just read. Jesus says plainly that he has authority over all flesh. That would mean rich, poor, male, female, uh, sophisticated, hick, uh, highly educated, not educated. He has authority over all flesh. And I say it's hard to believe because as you look at our world, you wonder, really? Because it looks sort of out of control from time to time. 
Like people are doing their own thing quite apart from God. And of course we know the reason for that. It's called free will. It's called volition. You make choices up to a certain point. You exercise that free will. And as it is exercised, you can do bad things or good things. And when you see bad things happen, you wonder, it's out of control. No, because one day every knee will bow. Even the terrorist knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, William Henley may write his famous poem, Invictus, when he says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Okay, temporarily you are. But eternally you are not. You choose now where you want to spend that. And one day there will be a judgment. And Jesus' final expression of authority will be at the judgment. And so the wise thing to ask right now on earth isn't, how can I escape his authority? Because you can't. But how do I respond to it correctly? He has authority over all flesh. That's a gift the Father has given the Son. Look also in verse 2 once again. There's another gift the Father has given the Son. It's a gift of us, people. He says, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now that's a theme that runs through this. It's not the first time he, or only time he says that. Look in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 12. Or verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. And verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, those whom you gave me. And then finally, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may be held, hold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Now God the Father decided that God the Son, Jesus Christ, should have a people, his own people. Jesus calls them the church. Later on they were called Christians. They belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Have you ever had somebody deride you or chide you with, with a remark like, what do you think you are? God's gift to the world? You could answer that by saying, no, I'm God's gift to Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what you are. The Father drew you to Christ and gave you to Him as His own peculiar people, the Bible says. And you are God's peculiar people. <laughs> it's peculiar that God would choose you and more peculiar that God would choose me to be His people. But we belong to Him. That's a gift that the Father gave the Son, your God's gift to Jesus. And what a satisfying gift it was. It says in Hebrews, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. You know what the joy was? It was the joy, it was the authority to make you His people by redemption. He had that authority. What a joy to redeem you and have you presented 
as a gift to the Son. Jesus gave a parable, and it is the kind of a parable that is too good to be true. In fact, it's so good to be true that it has often been misinterpreted. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Now, I have read some people interpret it saying, well, that's the Christian. He has to give up everything and sell everything and and then find Jesus. That's a wrong interpretation because in that very section, Jesus says, the field is the world. You didn't buy the world. You can't buy the world. In fact, you have nothing of any value to sell off to buy salvation. The point of the parable is that Jesus sold everything gave up everything, gave up his glory temporarily, died on the cross, shed his blood to buy the world back to God for the treasure, you are the treasure of Jesus. What a truth. I've told you before the great old story of the gingerbread man. The little boy made one his own, baked it, And it came alive when he took it out of the oven, ran away from him, ran down the street, couldn't find it, searched all day long, finally found it in a bakery window in town, went in and said, Mr. Owner, that's my gingerbread man in the window. I want it back. Oh, it is, is it? You can have it back for 25 cents. Oh, no, it's mine. I made it. Well, you have to buy it now. So the little boy bought the gingerbread man, took it home and crushed it. No, That would be Skip's gingerbread man. (laughs) This boy turned to the gingerbread man and said, Now you're really mine. You were mine first because I made you. Now you're mine because I bought you. And what does it say in the Bible about us? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify the Lord in your body and your spirit, which are the Lord's. Think what that means. You have given, if you've given your life to Christ, you have given the pink slip of your life to Him. You've said you're in charge. You call Him Lord, right? That means He's the boss. Romans says you were once slaves to sin. Now you're slaves to God. He owned you. He bought you. He bought you with His blood. The Father presented you to Jesus Christ as His own possession. Do you act like it? You're a slave to someone or something. Everybody is. You're either a slave to yourself. You're a slave to a habit you have. You're you're a slave to people's opinions. You're a slave to what you own. Or you're a slave to Jesus Christ. There was a man that walked the streets in Los Angeles years ago. People used to make fun of him. He had a sandwich board. You know, sign on one side, sign on the other. On the front, it said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And people used to mock him. Look at this, slave of Jesus Christ. And when he would turn around, there was a question, whose slave are you? You're somebody's. 1979, Bob Dylan wrote that famous song, you got to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. And he went on and on, a list of people, but the bottom line is, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil... Or it may be the Lord, 
but you're going to have to serve somebody. (laughs) And you are. Whose slave are you? Are you His? He bought you. You belong to Him now. You're the gift to the Son. Third, and finally, we close with this, is the gift of life. Now, the first two gifts that Jesus recollects, He he requests glory. He recollects the gift of authority. He recollects the gift of a people. You've given them to Me. But now He also mentions a gift that He gives to people. Verse 2, it's the gift of life. As you have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give, that's the Son should give, eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is how it works. Jesus wants the glory back that He had with the Father. Why? So that He can glorify the Father. That's what He says. How would He do that? By exercising His authority. The authority that He has over all flesh to raise Himself from the dead. To build a church, a group of people, and give them eternal life. Because that's been God's plan all along. That's how it all works together. Now what is eternal life? Is it reincarnation? That's not what Jesus is referring to. Is it extended life? Is that what he means? Just going on and on and on and on and living and living and living. That's really not the idea here. Notice Jesus describes in verse 3 eternal life, not chronologically, not expansively, but relationally. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word that he used is gnosko, for to know. It doesn't mean to get information about. It doesn't mean to simply acknowledge. It means to know on an intimate, personal, experiential level. We all know the president, but we don't know him. We know what he looks like. We know what he sounds like. We know that when he falls because he ate a pretzel wrong, that he gets a mark on a part of his head. We know all that. We've seen it. But you don't know him personally. If you do, would you introduce yourself to me after the service? Because I'd like to tell him something. (laughs) Now, you don't know him personally. You can know God personally. Now, a lot of people rest in the laurels. Oh, I know all about God. I know he has a son named Jesus. I know there's the Holy Spirit around somewhere. I know there's a heaven. I know that. But do you know him by being born again. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. It's a personal knowledge. And what do you have when you know the Father? You have eternal life. Ionios zoe is the word. Age abiding life. It speaks of a quality rather than a quantity. It's a quality of experience, not a quantity of time. It's something that begins now. It's not you will get it, you have it. John chapter 5, whoever believes in me has everlasting life and doesn't pass into judgment. It's something you have. That's a gift God will give to you. Now, giving a gift is one thing, but it's not all of it. You have to receive it. Somebody can hold out a gift to you and you can go, no, thank you. I don't want that gift. It's very nice of you, but all roads lead to you. 
And that's true. Every road will lead you to God, His judgment. But not all roads will lead you into heaven, His heaven, with age-abiding life. But the gift must be received. And to receive the gift of eternal life, you have to receive the one who has the authority to give it, the Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would have everlasting life. As many as received Him, the Bible says, God gave them the right to become children of God. So if you want the gift of eternal life, you have to give precedence to receiving the Son of God who died for you on the cross. Eternal life is the most expensive gift in the world. It costs the Father the blood of His only Son to buy you. It is the most expensive gift in the world, but it's the most essential gift in the world. Without life, there is no heaven. Knowing God is everlasting life. As we close, I want you to come with me to a Houston, Texas shopping center around Christmas time. It's a Target shopping center, five days before Christmas. It's packed full of cars. The person riding this can't find a place. The stress is getting to him, and he writes, Why did I come here today? My feet ached almost as much as my head. My list contains the names of several people who claimed they wanted nothing, but I knew their feelings would be hurt if I didn't buy them something. Buying for someone who has everything and deploring the high cost of items, I considered gift buying anything but fun. Hurriedly, I filled my shopping cart with last-minute items and proceeded to the long checkout lines. I picked the shortest, but it looked as if it would mean at least a 20-minute wait. In front of me were two small children, a boy of about 10 and a younger girl of about 5. The boy wore a ragged coat. Enormously large, tattered tennis shoes jutted out far in front of his much-too-short jeans. He clutched several crumpled dollar bills in his grimy little hands. The girl's clothing was like her brother's. Her head was a matted mass of curly hair. Reminders of an evening meal showed on her small face. She carried a beautiful pair of shiny gold house slippers. As the Christmas music sounded in the store's stereo system, the girl hummed along off-key, but happily, When we finally approached the checkout register, the girl carefully placed the shoe on the counter, the shoes on the counter. She treated them as though they were a treasure. The clerk rang up the bill. That'll be $6.09, she said. The boy laid his crumpled dollar atop the stand while his, the boy laid his crumpled dollar bill atop the stand that he took and taken from his pockets. He finally came up with $3.12. Well, I guess we'll have to put him back, he said bravely. We'll come back some other time, maybe maybe tomorrow. With that statement, a soft sob broke from the little girl. But Jesus would have loved these shoes, she cried. Well, we'll go home and we'll work some more. Don't cry, we'll come back, he said. Quickly, I handed $3.00. To the cashier. These children had waited in line for a long time. After all, it was Christmas. 
Suddenly a pair of arms came around me and a small voice said, Thank you, sir. What did you mean when you said Jesus would like these shoes? I asked. The small boy answered, Oh, our mommy is sick and going to heaven. Daddy said she might go before Christmas to be with Jesus. The girl spoke. My Sunday school teacher said the streets in heaven are shiny gold, just like these shoes. Won't mommy be beautiful walking on those streets to match these shoes? Well, my eyes flooded as I looked into her tear-streaked face. Yes, I answered, I'm sure she will. Silently, I thanked God for using these children to remind me of the true spirit of gift-giving. God the Father gave the greatest gift to this earth, His Son, who came, emptied Himself of all of the glory of heaven to die on a cross to get you and me to be able to walk the streets of heaven. The most expensive gift, the most essential gift. Are you sure you've received that gift? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's one gift that Jesus wants. It's people. It's not bigger mansions. It's not more universes. He made them to begin with. It's us. It's our hearts. You want far more than attendance, Far more than a monetary offering, you want the essence of who we are. An authentic, personal relationship with you that you said in the Bible comes from our faith in Christ, our repentance of sins, our turning to you. That's what you want. That's what the whole plan was all about. That's what the coming to the earth was all about. That's the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of the atonement, the purpose of the resurrection. It's all so that the treasure might be secured from the field. And Lord, if there's somebody else tonight in this room or listening by radio that's a part of that treasure, a part of that cluster of gifts, people that are to be given to the Son who haven't come yet, I pray they would realize this gift cost a lot and it is essential that we receive it personally. It personally.